Hello and welcome back to Filmonomics at Slated. I'm Colin Brown, your podcast host, and this week we're going to be looking at the triggers that ignite the action movie business. Joining me as our guest is Mark Stewart, the British-born film financier who's done remarkably well putting money into films driven by high-testosterone male stars. You know, the kind that only need their last names and brooding faces on the cinema poster or DVD cover, or these days the VOD listing. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Willis, Cage... De Niro, The Rock. Now, I say done remarkably well in Mark's case because these are the kinds of often maligned films that perform rather better than their media coverage might suggest. It probably comes as no great surprise to see film critics turning their nose up at what can seem like routine by-the-numbers plotlines, punctuated by explosions, histrionic dialogue, and alpha male combat rituals. But what is surprising is that no matter what the US box office numbers might tell you, assuming these films even get into the American movie house, indie action movies are still a profitable business proposition, so long as you know who to team up with and how to structure your dealings. Some of that enduring viability, as you'll hear now from Mark, is because the underlying home entertainment demand in the US is more robust than commonly assumed. But above all, much of the action business boils down to the sheer pulling power that these male stars have around the world. Nicolas Cage, for example, is very well liked in China where he appears in commercials and is taken rather more seriously as an artist than here at home. And for his part, Sylvester Stallone is a big deal in Russia, even to the point where the city of St. Petersburg hosted an exhibit of Sly's paintings just a couple of years back. And of course, the great global success of the Expendables franchise has reminded everyone how much it pays to keep that gym membership going well into your pension years. When it comes to pre-selling your action film to international distributors, it's a parallel universe out there. Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, these guys still have value in foreign, whereas the US would view them as maybe, you know, slightly moved on and past their sell-by date, whereas foreign seems a bit behind as far as which movie stars they wish to see. You know, they made another kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and that sold very well in foreign. Mark entered that universe of the pre-sellables from the portal of the British financial services sector. Although he worked in the city of London, his real love was always cinema. He had even studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art before entering the world of big money. So it was only natural that he would combine the two and think about investing in films. Despite everyone warning him that it was financial suicide, he put money into Fire with Fire, a 2011 film that co-starred Bruce Willis. Now that $10 million production may only have been liked by 7% of film critics, according to Rotten Tomatoes, but it sold well internationally and made several million going straight to video in the US through Lionsgate. Mark says he did quite well on the film, enough certainly to then back The Frozen Ground, starring Nick Cage and John Cusack. Like several of Mark's investments, that film was made by Emmett Furler, the production partnership known for making mid-budget action films with a heavyweight cast. Looking to get more involved than just being a passive investor in films, Mark got his first full producer credit on The Empire State, in which The Rock appeared opposite Liam Hemsworth. Today, he keeps juggling between executive producing and full producing, although the difference between the two, he says, is somewhat moot, because he's still basically trying to look after everyone's financial interests. On occasion, Mark will bring some finance to the table from other equity sources, and other times, he'll put in his own money, all on the prerequisite that the project can demonstrate strong foreign sales potential 
and will also film in a US state, such as Louisiana or Ohio, that has generous enough tax credits for film productions. Now, this seemingly bulletproof strategy might sound straightforward and an easy template for others to pursue, but it required Mark to do some painstaking homework and to listen to his commercial brain first. And even then, his first investment might have gone up in flames straight out of the gate, but for sheer good fortune, as he now freely concedes five years later. It was a bit of luck. I actually had, I had a, a buddy out in LA and he was investing too. And I'm, my first name is Mark, as you know, and everyone used to nickname me Question Mark. So I used to ask question after question after question. And really, when you sit down, like I said, a financial background and you ask kind of the financial questions, it kind of made sense for the things that I understood now. Like you had an, an A-list cast at that time, we well, still kind of is, but he was a lot stronger, very strong and foreign. There was already some sales in place. I mean, it was, you were right, it was a, a bit of luck, but it, it all kind of, when you sat down and understood the model that the, it was operating off, um, it was very reassuring, and that's kind of why I went forward. I, I had seen a, a couple of other projects before, and I, I had actually seen a lot of projects in the UK which were very indie. They were they were not really any name cast. The scripts were dramas that were quite heavy going, the kind of things that could win awards, but at the same time could be a complete miss. And so it just felt reassuring going with such a strong genre and with such a big action star in the lead. So yeah, a bit of luck, but I kind of had done quite a lot of work beforehand on kind of sussing out the industry and learning a bit about the financial side. If I go right back, I mean, I've always loved film. I studied film at university. I took a master's degree in cinema. I went to drama school, went to um, RADA back in the UK. So I kind of, when I was working in the city, it was like it was a good job and it was well paid, but it wasn't like I didn't love it. The first thing is it kind of drew me in because I wanted to do something I enjoy. But I mean, I spoke to a few guys who'd operated film funds out of the UK, a few hedge fund guys, but really it was speaking to the other EPs on the project who who had experience having done this before. And I had looked, like I said, at a couple of other projects and I'd really learned the financials and I'd, I'd nearly pulled the trigger and I didn't just because I wasn't happy with some of the stuff. And the thing was I learned early on is... Um, I'm, I'm trying to view this from a financial viewpoint as opposed to trying to win awards. And I'm, like, if I go to cinema, I'd, I'd rather go and see, I guess, a kind of art out type, type movie, uh, Oscar type movie. But I've, I've kind of taken it that as far as work's concerned, I'm looking at it as a financial model and what stacks up. So um, my filmography is mainly action pieces. So I'm, I'm looking for action thriller genre which obviously stacks up well as opposed to say comedy it, it, it's difficult because obviously as a genre it's quite formulaic and people are kind of another bruce willis movie or another nick cage movie or de niro as you know there's a handful of people who can prop up the foreign sales on this but at the same time i feel you have a responsibility to your investors uh, and to everyone involved in the project to make it work now, just because there are genre conventions at play here with action-led pictures doesn't mean that there's no room for innovative stories. As we've learnt before in this podcast, the name of the game these days is to somehow rise above the fray with something new and original, even within the constraints of something as familiar as a thriller and with known faces. Every producer out there says they're trying to find great material, and Mark is no different in that regard. Action films need to explode off that page too if they are to get his backing. It's just finding... 
it's finding the scripts. I mean, I'm sure every every producer says this. It, it all starts with material, and it's just very hard. I mean, I probably read like at least one, maybe two scripts a day, trying to find something because I'm operating at a kind of less than twenty million dollar budget. So first of all, I can't have huge explosions. You know, it, it's got to be a, you know fit within that model. And it's just finding something that is a bit interesting. It does have the twists and you're not kind of just reading the same thing over and over again. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm reading scripts all day long trying to find something different, but it, it's hard. I, I always think it's like it just, you just want to keep reading. It's like a good book. And that's how I always kind of read. It. And if I'm kind of at page 40 and I'm kind of like, oh, you know, this is hard, then I, I basically will probably stop because it, it doesn't really get if it hasn't got me by then if we're kind of like 30 40 minutes into moving hasn't got me then it's not going to get the viewer so i i kind of like i I won't always give full coverage if someone send me a script i kind of i'll read about half and it has to have gripped me i think bob hoskins had this great analogy that he used to he used to start reading a script when he was on the toilet and if he basically is bumbled <laughs> up, uh, he it was a good script and it's kind of, i kind of took his point and it's like a good book i mean if i start reading a book and I'm finding it heavy going, then I'll, I'll put it down. If landing a gripping script is half the battle, then the other half is securing the kind of name talents that will entice distributors in various countries into committing to buy the local territorial rights of that project before even seeing the finished film. They might do so on the strength of the package, and maybe a mocked-up one-sheet or mood reel that sells the dream in the same way that a real estate developer might visualise a potential waterfront lot. But above all that, they want to see certain actors in that cast doing their iconic thing. Welcome to the world of foreign pre-sales. It's an intricate, not always quantifiable business made all the more complicated by the fact that every foreign distributor has their own list of favoured actors, based on their own preferences as well as local popularity. A few choice names, however, transcend the pack. Get them to sign on the dotted line in an action movie and you've gone a long way to reducing your upfront financial risks as an investor. So I asked Mark who these prize talents are these days. I mean, the guys who will do this is still, well, I mean, do this, do, do these action movies or the, on this model I know is Nick, is Nick Cage, Bruce Willis, Robert De Niro, uh, Arnold, if it's a very strong script, Sylvester Stallone. Um, and they're, they're kind of the old boys. And I think it's a case of what, Amer- what do America domestic views is different to foreign. So Steven Seagal, I've had conversations with uh, sales agents, Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, these guys still have have value in foreign, whereas the US would view them as maybe, you know, slightly moved on and, and, and past their sell-by date, whereas foreign seems a bit behind as far as which movie stars they wish to see. So, I mean, they, you know, they made another kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme and that sold very well in foreign. So, I, I mean, it, it kind of differs. Um, but I, I think the kind of established stars, I mean, when you have such great movies as Con Air and Die Hard and, and people remember those, I think those guys have still got a while with their legacies. From a producing point of view, it might be tempting to re-energize the genre by pairing these veterans up with young hotshot directors who bring with them a contemporary vision. But remember, these actors have seen it all before, and the last thing they want, particularly on sets involving elaborate set pieces and explosive logistics, is to be in the unsure hands of an ingenue, straight out of Sundance. That's for low-budget dramas, 
we've used first-time directors before and it's been a problem just because of the understanding of budget and scheduling. Uh, so we like some experience, but it's, it's really a kind of sit-down, especially when you're working with people like Bruce Willis or Nick Cage, that they want to sit down with the directors. They've done this before. They, they, they want someone who they know they're going to work with, it's going to work well, and everything's going to run smoothly. So, I mean, as far as directors are concerned, try and avoid first-time directors. And we've done it a couple of times because they've been the writer and they're completely enveloped in the script and they've come with everything storyboarded out and they've been so sure and they've kind of pitched it brilliantly. But I just get, I guess you prefer someone who's been in the genre before, who's produced a couple of movies and who really has a clear focus and vision on where, where they're going to take the material. Not everything that Mark has backed falls into the action category. He was also an investor in Days and Nights, a modern-day interpretation of Anton Chekhov's The Seagull that marked the directorial debut of actor Christian Camargo. Originally set up under the title of Viola and Piano, this New England-set drama was among the very first projects to raise its equity financing through Slated. And while it may seem a dramatic departure for Mark, he himself says that the business proposition followed the same blueprint as some of his other investments. It was quite a low budget, and we had a very strong cast. I mean, it was... Katie Holmes, which was her first movie after quite a high-profile divorce. It was Alison Janney, Mark Rylance, William Hurt, Gene Reno, Ben Whishaw. It was an amazing ensemble cast. The script was a strong script, I felt, and I just thought that we had the people involved next to the budget for it, for it to, to work. So I know it wasn't an action movie, but it was kind of similar outlook was how I was seeing it. Um, Looking back, I think it would have worked. I mean, I was only an EP and we had producers and I, I think maybe we didn't go for any pre-sales and we were offered some pre-sales. And I think we should have probably taken the pre-sales. But as a group, it was decided against that. And I think if it, we'd done that, it would have easily stacked up financially. I mean, it, it's, it's a good movie. It's just it, it's a shame. It's just not that many people have, have seen it. But, you yeah, know, I viewed it kind of the same way is that you had this very strong cast with a low budget. Most people working for scale. Um, the actors were taking back end and it, 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 uh, it was the kind of same outlook. In the end, Days and Nights was picked up for US distribution by IFC Films. And as luck would have it, that was a little over a year before one of the co-stars, Mark Rylance, shot to global recognition after winning his Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. He has then signed on for subsequent roles in Spielberg's The BFG, Christopher Nolan's upcoming Dunkirk, and Ready Player One, a game for Spielberg, which just goes to show that half the film business, as they say, comes down to simple timing. Fully armed with this 2020 hindsight, I asked Mark whether he still believes in the investing potential promised by Slated's platform. 100%, I think it's very useful. I mean, the thing is, you find two groups of people. As a producer, you, you have these great projects, and you just can't find the investors. You don't know where to look. And likewise, I met high net individuals, and they kind of like, you know, I, I met one guy, I remember, and he, he, he sold mops or something. He made his fortune in mops. And he told me this analogy, like people kind of ask you around the dining room table, what do you do? And he's like, I sell mops. And they're kind of like, oh, great, end of conversation. Whereas they, they, they want to invest in projects. They want to invest in movies. And I think it kind of brings the two together. And I think it's very useful. And the days and nights of violin and piano, I mean, I was after, I nearly got involved in the way, way back through Slated, which is, I was kind of kicking myself, which... I'm sure you remember that was the Steve Carell movie that Fox Searchlight paid, I think it was 10 million at Sundance. And so 
Yeah, I, I, I think if, if, you, if you're astute and you pick your projects, I, I think it's a very useful platform. I think it's um, a great idea. And it's, it's, I, I go on Slated probably like a couple of times a week just to see the projects that are on there. And I, I just think it brings the two together because it's, it's very hard. Like you say, you asked how I knew about film finance. Well, it's very hard to even find out about film finance. And it's the same for, in, for investors. If you meet these people and they go, yeah, I'm interested in doing that. Well, where do they begin? So, yeah, no, Colin, I, I think it's a useful platform. Beyond the financial payoffs that come from Slated acting as a two-sided marketplace for producers and investors, Mark also sees the collateral benefits of assuring would-be financiers that film is an actual business worth taking seriously. I think, I think the other problem, which is just a general industry point, is that film finance still has this stigma and people are naturally quite reserved as far as investing. And when you hear, I'm just from a UK point of view, you know, things like ingenious media and negative publicity like that. That's something that I've found is something that you need to sit down with people and really explain how things are structured and how they work. Um, and it, it, there's, 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 there's kind of this resonance that it's kind of like not a f- financially safe investment and that you really need to understand that it can work, you know, it can work and it's stacked up well. It, it can be a viable investment. I say this to first-time investors, like banks in, in the US will lend against foreign sales, you know, and they're literally like shocked that banks, and I said, banks don't take risk and, and you kind of, they're kind of shocked, literally. I always, they always say that like, and they're like banks, I'm like, it's banks, institutions. A big part of Mark's game plan is to utilize the various tax incentive schemes offered by different states in America to lure in job-creating productions to their localities. At a time when some states are cutting back, or even reconsidering in light of competing demands on their state budgets, I asked Mark whether he had looked outside the United States at other tax-advantaged film locations. I'm English and the UK would, is, is, and Germany are both places I've looked at before. It's kind of it's kind of like we've got this model and, and it's worked. And, and I, I also did Escape Plan, which was a much bigger movie. That was was a much bigger budget with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. And that was shot in Louisiana. And again, that worked well. And it's kind of like better the devil you know. Um, I, I, so I'm kind of quite happy. Uh, you know, I've got a family. We're based in the US. So it's just easier for me to stay here. As it happens, the big film that Mark talks about here, the 2013 prison break film Escape Plan, made most of its money outside the US. Its budget was pegged at anywhere between $50 million and $70 million. It grossed $25 million in the US and is thought to have done around $15 million worth of business in US home video sales. But overseas, it raked in $112 million, and that's from theatres alone. The standout territorial results were the $7 million taken from Russia, where, as you recall, Sly rules, the 5.8 million in Japan, the 4.5 million in UK, and the nearly 4 million in France. Even in obscure territories, the film did well. It grossed more than 2 million in places like the UAE, Venezuela, and Malaysia. But above them all was China, whose $40 million easily eclipsed the North American performance. So it's not surprising that A, a sequel has been greenlit, albeit without Arnie, and B, that this sequel is now being set up as a China-US co-production. It's interesting because we, we, we've um, announced there's an escape plan too, which is going to be a Chinese co-production. Um, and there is, um, Jackie Chan is still worth a lot in foreign. And there is a few Chinese actors that could appear in the projects. Um, 
but at the same time it's not being made for china it's just a chinese co-production so it's kind of getting that balance between a chinese actor who is very well received in china but is also very well known around the world so um yeah i mean uh, jackie chan springs to mind straight away as someone who would would be perfect I think every week there's a Chinese co-production press release, but it's really, it's quite hard actually. And it was funny because we're talking about foreign. I mean, Escape Plan, which was a Schwarzenegger Stallone's kind of first movie together, these two great action stars, and it didn't perform very well domestically, but it ended up doing 137 million worldwide. Um, obviously, propped up on its foreign uh, its foreign box office. I think that's that's a perfect example of what we're talking about in that it was it's a, it's basically a sequel of those numbers you know it did it's one of the highest grossing movies of all time in China I think it's like the 120th highest grossing movie in China um people outside of America still want to see these these uh legend action legends on the screen whereas the US you know, the appetite wasn't there so it, it, it's going back to that conversation about maybe the foreign what the foreign audience wants to see is different from the United States audience. Clearly, the global axis is shifting, and maybe the business model will also change with that shift. Right now, as you'll hear, the business fundamentals are solid enough for some action specialists to keep flexing their muscles in much the same way, even if so much of that business remains below the industry radar. Longer term, however, the reliance on that select group of aging stars can only yield diminishing returns. Even The Expendables is said to be looking at younger names for future installments. So I wondered what Mark made of the market dynamics right now, and also looking into the future. I mean, as far as the US market, I mean, the DVD VOD market is still stronger than people would imagine. So often, like people look at a movie and it says it's gone straight to VOD or DVD in the US, and people are very you see the press and they like you say they get behind it they're like oh so and so's latest movie only took like you know fifty thousand dollars at the box office well what they're not understanding is the model because as you know if you send a movie to the theaters you've got to promote that movie you've got your pna costs uh, and you're up against you're up against all the studio movies you're up against everything else if you send it to vod dvd well it's basically profit from 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 day one almost um and people People still want to see these. I think formulaic's not a right word, but a genre that is, you know, there's not much that you can be surprised at with this kind of action thriller genre with these stars. And so some of these movies I've done have gone straight to the VOD DVD market and they perform very well um, and made them profitable for whoever's picked up the domestic, the domestic distribution. And so I think that as a, as a model, it could still keep working as long as the DVD VOD. Uh, model um the numbers stay high um and where we're gonna go i don't know with your netflixes and your your amazons and stuff but i I think that i always have this conversation as far as like theatrical release in the us it isn't the be all and end all because you can still end up profitable every movie that we've ever opened that's gone even a day and date release has been in the top 10 dvd sales for at least a couple weeks um so you're, you're shifting shifting a lot of units so I mean, it, it seems to be working, Colin. So I, I'm I, yeah, but like you say, is, is you've asked some very good questions because I don't know how long it can last. All I would say is obviously it's a model that that's quite well known, and I don't know how long it can last. There's a handful of guys who are big enough stars to kind of 
draw the foreign numbers and the numbers aren't as strong as they were say three or four years ago so the numbers are accurate but they're coming down and i think that foreign buyers now are particularly wary of just kind of just buying a movie because it's got a star and they kind of want something a bit more than that so it's, it's interesting where it will go where it will go from here i mean it's still working as a model i mean i'm working on a a movie at the moment called Reprisal and it's an action movie, action thriller. It's a, it's a it's high space movie and it's a very good script and Bruce Willis is interested. But I think that moving forward, say in two or three years, we could be having a different discussion about how these, how these are propped up and you might need some equity players to come in and try and get some reassurance of definite domestic theatrical releases, whereas some of these are going like their day and date releases, they're going straight on VOD on demand, um, and then they're being released in, in foreign territories theatrically. I don't know. I mean, I think that could be what's going to change because I can't see how the same handful of people can keep propping up the foreign sales, just from my perspective as a producer. I mean, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until I need to make a change, and then, and then maybe it, the structure will change. And so maybe then you might have to move outside the US. It might be a case of rather than just having one big action star, we try and get three strong actors, a kind of, I don't know, uh, an Anthony Hopkins, a Ben Kingsley and a young and up and coming actor. I think maybe that could be the way forward rather than just hanging everything off one individual person. But I guess we'll see. Listening to Mark reminds us that while independent horror has been grabbing all the genre headlines in the last few years, there are other viable genres too. One that does not discriminate against age, it seems. If 71-year-old Dame Helen Mirren can wield an automatic alongside Bruce Willis in red, well then there's hope for every thespian out there, particularly if Mark's vision of an ensemble action future comes to pass. It's also refreshing to hear from someone who so clearly puts investor interests front and centre. When acting on behalf of other equity investors, he doesn't feel comfortable enough involving them in a project that doesn't stand much of a chance of a theatrical release, at least internationally, and with it the best chance of seeing a return on their money. But guaranteeing such a theatrical release in a world where Hollywood action is offered for the same ticket price as the indie budgeted version is clearly the new challenge on the international horizon. Well, that's all for me this week. I'll be back, in those immortal words, next week, when we'll be looking at the world of non-fiction and branded filmmaking through the eyes of Morgan Spurlock. Supersize that in your podcast schedules. 